And that jarring cacophony tells you that you're listening to another episode of the Power of Three podcast, made in Scotland from... Um, from Pakora and from Chicken Tikka Masala. Okay, well, I'd go for Iron Brew Jelly Babies at the moment because they are my favourite thing. Deep, have you ever had the deep fried Mars bar? Yeah, I had a deep fried. Oh, don't, yeah, don't be bloody stupid, Dave Steve yeah. says, Kerry, with that expression. I only had my first one for the first time a few months ago. Really? One of the touring crews at the band were doing at the garage, one of the guys went over to a chippy across the road and bought like 10 uh-huh. deep fried Mars bars and came back with them and was just like, and I was like, right, okay, I'll have one. Fair Maybe we'll put the photograph of me eating my first deep fried Mars bar up on the, the, the Facebook oh. page today. Well, anyway, who did are you? you? Like who are you? I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, did you like your deep fried Mars Yeah, bar? it was kind of interesting. Try the Snickers. I had a deep fried Snickers for a deep fried Mars in Edinburgh once after theatre. And this is the man who refused to go to come to Greg's with me one morning to get a, a bacon roll before going for our tr- traditional Sunday morning walk. Listeners, but he'll have a you'll have something like a sickening like a deep fried Snickers bar at that time of night yeah. you're a disgrace I'm waggling my finger at you for the better Absolutely. for YouTube viewers <laughs> anyway Out. yes we're back but we're chatting about a book that's not a novel today gasp we've been talking about a lot of books this month we have I've read more Doctor Who books in the last month than I've read probably since about 1996 wow so there we are but have you enjoyed them yes that's good that's what we need to know exactly let's do more yes maybe but let's move on and talk right. about something else what are we talking about today today we're talking about, we're talking about a new book called pull to open which has been written by paul hayes paul hayes who wrote the, the magnificent the long game which came out a couple of years ago um yep. and it was all about doctor who coming back yeah and it was marvellous it really really was um, a proper forensic examination of everything that went on brilliant brilliant details brilliant access to a lot of stuff a lot of people um, absolutely fascinating I I read it very quickly found it very very difficult to put down it was it was excellent well I have to say that Pool to Open which is its sequel but also a prequel as this is one that covers the I'll tell you what it says it's Pool to Open 1962 to 1963, the inside story of how the BBC created and launched Doctor Who. When Doctor Who began on Saturday, the 23rd of November 1963, few could have guessed that it marked the start of perhaps the most extraordinary story in the history of BBC television drama. But there had already been another story, equally extraordinary yet unseen leading up to the transmission of that opening episode, the creation of the series itself. Pull to Open explores the behind-the-scenes saga of Doctor Who in 1963, when a chain of events at the BBC brought together a disparate group to launch what would become one of British TV's best-loved and most successful programmes. It's the story of why these events happened, the BBC creative culture into which Doctor Who was born, how television drama was made in the early 1960s, and an insight into the people who started this journey. And this book is drawing from BBC's written archives and new interviews, including people like Boris Hussain, obviously the director of the original show, and Caroline Ford. So it's quite interesting. A, an interesting mix. And it's got a forward by our pal Toby Haydock. Well, he knows his stuff. Uh, listeners, we would refer you at this point to Toby's Too Much Information segment of his podcast. He's just put out another episode a couple of weeks ago about the... Second last episode, was it Mighty Kubla Khan of, uh, or was it the last episode? I can't remember. One, second last episode, I think, of Marco Polo. It's brilliant. 
Toby's going to appreciate this, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm very intrigued about this one. If it's half as good as the first one, it'll be excellent. Well, I can tell you that it is. It's I've I've got a PDF copy. I've requested a copy for Christmas of the real physical book because I like to have a real physical copy of books on my shelves. I do dread the day though that when I'm no more and then poor Katie's going to have to go through and work out what the hell's he doing with all these books what am I going to do with them pity, pity the poor sod that has to deal with my library <laughs> if I was to drop in the next anyway let's, let's yeah. think happier thoughts absolutely I mean this is a fantastic book it's going through you know all these names that we know of like C.E. Bunny Weber Donald Wilson David Whittaker Verity Lambert is there much in it about Anthony Coburn controversial <laughs> yes well you have to buy the book to find out because I'm not going to tell you everything good but um, well funnily enough and there's actually a bit on Donald Wilson who was Scottish of course and uh, was born in Dunblane so and oh, that's uh, interesting his father was head of the Wilson and Lambie stockbrokers firm in Glasgow so there you go but yes he was uh, an interesting fellow so that's a Scottish connection there so it's quite nice cool. to read that good 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 um, there was Paul did a bit in DWM years ago about him, and but it was cut down apparently. But we'll right. hear about that later. Okay. So it's interesting, just from our point of view as Scottish people, and how there's a Scottish involvement in Doctor Who at the very beginning. Absolutely. So tell us what your thoughts are on the long game, because this is a, exactly well, the same forensic. Well, as I said, it's um, attention to detail is brilliant. I mean, it's it's there was a lot of stuff in it that I kind of I remembered stuff like Death Comes to Time, and obviously what happened after the TV movie when it all went quiet again, and stuff like. Scream of the Shalka and all that and the endless speculation about it coming back but it's good because it's got all the details about Russell's conversations with Jane Tranter and what have you and I don't think Russell himself is interviewed is he? No. But Jane Tranter and Mal Young um, Lorraine Hennessy are all involved and it's, it's really really interesting it's one of these things you think you know it all because you were there at the time but you're then made aware of how much is actually going on behind the scenes and just how determined certain people actually were to get the programme back and reading that it was actually quite encouraging because you know after having lived through what's become popularly known as the the wilderness years when there wasn't a TV series and you know we had we just the books and then eventually Big Finish you know it was there was a period you know where we thought it was never going to come back and it's I, I can't believe you know I realised the other day that um where we are at the moment we're further away now from parting of the ways then obviously parting of the ways was from, you know, time in the Rani. I am only just thinking about it because we've got a new doctor arriving and yeah. all that sort of stuff and you know there's a there's a longer gap, just under eighteen years between time in the Rani and parting of the ways and the arrival of DT and then DT's back and anyway, it just struck me the other night when I couldn't sleep. So it's it's yeah, the the long game obviously named after the, the Russell episode and actually I've got a comic book cover with that cover line to post at some point in the next couple of days on my on my Twitter feed just to, to amuse Kenny if no one else um, <laughs> it's, it's a really really good book because as I say there was so much more going on and it was good to know that, that in a way we weren't alone in wanting it to come back you know yeah have you you've read Long Game I have indeed yeah. great read I got that gosh a couple of years ago when we spoke to Paul back in Power of Three episode 102 I think it was really me. a little while ago so yeah, but, I mean it's a great book. What I mean, he's gone through these archives and forensic detail, and you know found old interviews with Verity Lambert and people like that from like Doctor Who, the early years, that sort of thing. Right. And everything's been brought together in the one place, mm. and it's fascinating. And where there's conflicts of memories and things like that, they're made clear. And right. Paul tries to work out logically sure. who's correct. But right. If you can't work it out, then it's fine. Then yeah. Perhaps 
the, the truth will be somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. But it's a fascinating read, um, you know, about the casting, things like that, or how Verity Lambert came on board and right. disagreements and things like that. So okay. it's a fascinating read, and I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. I mean, I probably expect I'll check it out definitely because, say, the last one was so good. Yeah. Well, like, let's. I'm going to extend the challenge, Paul. I want you to write your next book about um, the last season of production of Patrick Troughton's Doctor and the first season of of Johnsy's Doctor and how close it was to being cancelled and the incredible Robert Baldick and all that sort of stuff and how many scripts fell through and they had to make the War Games ten episodes and Spearhead having to be made entirely on film. That's your that's your challenge for me for your next <laughs> book. I want to read that one next, please. Anyway. Why don't we hear from Paul now? Let's do that. Uh, well, I'm Paul Hayes. Uh, I'm lucky enough to occasionally get to write things about Doctor Who. And uh, this year, I've, uh, or Tenet Films, have brought out my book, Pull to Open, which tells the story of the creation of Doctor Who in 1963. Brilliant. Well, welcome back to The Power of Three, Paul. It's only been about, oh, 72 episodes since you last appeared to chat about <laughs> your previous book. <laughs> Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. I think that one came out October 21, and this came out August 23, so nearly two years between them, yeah. It's quite a, quite a gap in uh, terms of getting everything done. So, yeah, it's fascinating, a fascinating book. And, of course, the timing couldn't be more perfect. Well, thank you very much. Yes, I mean, I, I, I did... One of the reasons I think that I decided to go with this idea was obviously I knew the 60th anniversary was coming up, so... Having had the long game published and that had gone down quite well, I kind of had this idea that, well, maybe, you know, if I wrote another non-fiction Doctor Who book, that's, I mean, it sounds very mercenary, doesn't it? But I thought, well, that's something that's gone well with that one. So it, it's perhaps likelier that maybe I could get another Doctor Who book published. With the anniversary coming up, that was that was one of the reasons why I decided to tell this story. So let's go back. D1, you've got <laughs> an empty file in your laptop, your computer. What's your starting point? What what you decide to be? What's going to make this book different from every other book? Well, the reason that I thought I could have a go at doing it was because I mean, initially after the long game, I didn't have another idea for a Doctor Who book. But then, because I've always been fascinated by the story of the creation of the show, but I kind of thought, oh, it's it's been done. What could I add to it? But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, no, maybe there's something I I, I could do differently because when the creation's been written about before, whether it be you know in the first Doctor Handbook in in the 60s books I really love, you know, it, it, it's it's usually as makes sense, it's the beginning of the story. So it's then going on to tell the story of of the Hartnell era or the 60s or what have you, uh, or maybe the production of an unearthly child. But I thought you could do a book where the creation was the story that was the entire book it's not just the start of it that the creation is the entire story so i thought i could do that and uh one of the things that people seemed to have really enjoyed about the long game uh, which if people don't know it, it covers sort of late 90s early 2000s it goes from the tv movie to the recommission of the show in 2003 and tells the story of how and why that happened uh, and one of the things that people seemed to have liked about that was that where i sort of explained the wider background and context about the bbc at the time and british television at the time and how the these people got into those positions and so I thought I could bring that which people seem to have enjoyed to the creation story as well trying to give that wider background and context about the BBC in 1963 and you could try and um explain a bit more about who some of these people were that because that, that there's so many people involved in this process some of them to small degrees some of them to larger degrees 
And quite often, some of them are just names on a list. And I thought you, you could bring a bit more to them than that. And so it was all those, those kinds of things combined. And so in January 2022, a few months after the long game had come out, I sat down at the laptop with the new file open and I wrote the words, when did Doctor Who begin? Which is still the first sentence in chapter one of the book. Fantastic. So I'd imagine that this is going to involve a hell of a lot of research, getting interviews, accessing archives, looking through documentation, and basically a pretty big piece of work, given that there's, what, 60 years virtually at that point, 59 years virtually at that point. It was slightly different to the long game in the sense that with that, the, obviously everyone was still around. So I did over 30 interviews for that one. But for this one, obviously, sadly, most people uh, are not still around. So I only did three new interviews for this one. I spoke to Caroline Ford, Warris Hussein and, and Bernard Lodge. I also had an interview I'd done with Brian Hodgson a few years ago for radio. So I had that as well. But yes, it was lots of research, uh, going to the BBC Written Archive Centre at Caversham and looking through those files, which uh, I'd had a chance to look at some of them before, because a few years ago, I researched the life of Doctor Who's co-creator, Donald Wilson. And that's uh, one of the reasons that I uh, decided to do this book, actually, because I'd written an article about Donald Wilson for um, Doctor Who magazine. But uh, for various reasons, it ended up being a lot shorter when it was eventually published than, than, than what I'd written. And so I had a lot of stuff about him that I hadn't seen the light of day. And I thought, I'd thought, you know, in the whole process of deciding to do this book, well, I've, I've got, I could do a chapter about Donald Wilson, but what would that be a chapter of? Which is one of the other things that led me to do the creation. So there was, yeah, speaking in some cases to uh, to family members of some of the people who were no longer around, uh, researching in various kind of newspaper archives, which is, I mean, that's one of the great things about doing this kind of research in the 21st century is that so many of those kind of archives are now online. Obviously, some of them subscription-based, things like newspapers.com and, and the British Newspaper Archive. But, you know, if you pay a subscription to those, you can, you can get access to so much coverage from the time, which is obviously extremely useful. As I said, the, the BBC Red Archive Centre, bought and read lots and lots of brilliant books about about uh, television at the time and uh, um, uh, people's memoirs and uh, all that kind of thing. And uh, yes, yeah, so there was a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of delving into archive documents and uh, listening to and reading interviews that people had done while they were still alive and uh, uh, DVD commentaries and all that, all that kind of thing and trying to bring the whole story together as best I could. I know from personal experience how tough that can be, given that you've suddenly got a deluge of information. You think, how can I find the clear through consistent storyline when it comes to that? So you know what's going on, given that there'll be the odd contradiction and yeah. who is correct. And sometimes there's nothing that can back it up to confirm who's right. Well, I mean, obviously, there's various occasions where that happens, and all you can really do in that circumstance is, is try and present the reader with, with the differing accounts that exist. and try and give them as much of the context and you can perhaps say what you think is likeliest to have happened but at the end of the day all you can really do is present the reader with the evidence and and uh and, and let them make up their own mind about what what, what they feel happened you mentioned there that you've got some new interviews that must have been a delight getting the chance to speak to these people who've been so important to the show's first year really yeah, it was, it was it's a fantastic honour to speak to these people. I mean, I remember speaking. I ended up having quite a long phone chat with Warris Hussein and uh, for the book, and uh, it's great, great ple pleasure and a privilege to speak to him. And uh, I mean, you do have to be careful sometimes because obviously it's tricky. In that, on the one hand, you have to respect 
people's memories because they were there and uh you know you weren't but uh, at other times you know sometimes what they say contradicts what was clearly written down at the time and you think well do you trust someone's 60 year old memory or do you trust what was actually written down and recorded at the time you know so um occasionally you have to sort of um uh, as with any form of not this isn't just unique to doctor who is it you know any first-hand account of any kind of research you know you have to try try and back it up and uh and, and make sure that it makes sense in, in terms of everything else you know but yeah just that just speaking to people who were actually there i remember thinking this when I got to interview Brian Hodgson a few years ago, and you know, he was telling the stories of, you know, creating the TARDIS noise and creating the Dalek voices and uh, and all that kind of thing. And it's just uh, amazing to be. I mean, this is these people's jobs at the time, uh, but you know, for us, they've they've created history and a huge part of our lives. What they've done is, yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah. I mean, a day does not go by where Doctor Who sort of enters my head in some shape, form, yeah, or anything else. Yeah. But then in this. In this home office, I'm surrounded by it. So yeah, it's quite, quite. Well, beautiful. I mean, I spoke at the end of the book. Uh, it sort of ends with um, Warris and, and Carol sort of reflecting on on you know everything that's happened since. And Warris says, "I've got a bit at the end of the book there." Where he basically says, "You know, he could never have imagined at the time, you know, that it would become this huge cultural icon." He was just concentrating on trying to get it made in the studios. He said, "I don't know what I would have thought if if, if I could have somehow known that it would it would end up like this." I was just trying to get it made. I'd imagine that you probably turned up some fascinating, surprising facts that you didn't know before through the course of this. Yeah. Any, think, any particular yeah. ones that stand out? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no... It's, I mean, I, we should be open with people and say it's not the kind of book, it's not a book that's going to say everything you thought you knew is wrong. You know, it's not, uh, you know, blowing the whole thing wide open or anything. But as I say, it's more trying to trying to tell the story with the kind of wider background and context and trying to tell it in as full a way as I can. But there are some little sort of nuggets in there. I think um, Rex Tucker, who a lot of people know, was uh, originally supposed to be the first director of Doctor Who and kind of looked after it as a kind of caretaker producer before Verity Lambert arrived. And something I'd never read about him before, but I found in his files at the Britain Archive Centre, was that I think perhaps, I mean, this isn't explicitly stated, but I think perhaps one of the reasons he was brought onto the show was because he'd been trying to get his own science fiction serial made, a serial called The Seekers, which everyone kept turning down, basically because I think they thought it seemed like, a bit like a Quatermass in the Pit ripoff. <laughs> and so he kept getting turned down by everybody, but he kept plugging away at, at this and trying to get it made. And I think it was because they knew that he was interested in science fiction, trying to get this science fiction serial made that um he uh he was sort of brought on board although as we know that that didn't end up ending particularly well and, and, he, and he left before production began but um something that surprised me that i'd never really thought about before before i started studying this was that um i think a lot of us have this idea or certainly i maybe have this idea that we know that doctor at the time was made in kind of long rehearsed as live takes on the friday night in the studio after they'd been rehearsing in church halls and things all week uh but i hadn't realized how much kind of work was being done to the episodes afterwards and i was interested to read a, a couple of memos in the files there's one from bbc enterprises who were you know sold these programs around the world there's a memo from them from november 1963 complaining about the fact that um uh, they're now going to have to make their export copies, their film recordings from the, the final videotape masters, which they didn't want to do. They didn't want that extra generation in. They wanted to make, they and, and they'd started doing this for the first few episodes. They wanted to make their versions directly from what was coming out of the studio on the Friday night. So they were film recording 
what was coming out of the studio on the Friday night and they wanted to cut that, sell it abroad. But there's a memo from November 63 where they're moaning about the fact that they're going to have to make their film recordings from the videotape masters because too much is being done to the episodes afterwards. There's too much discontinuous recording and there's too much post-dubbing because the, the episodes, again, something I hadn't really appreciated until I started properly reading the files. There was always an editing session on the, on the Monday evening after they'd record on the Friday. And uh, I think we have this kind of idea, don't we, that that was it done 25 minutes in Lime Grove D, that was it done out. But there was always an editing session on the Monday evening for sort of post. I mean, they weren't doing hugely extensive editing. These were still mostly done in long as live takes, but there was more being done to them in what we'd now call post-production than I think we usually think about for 1963 at the time. I know at the time you were writing this, of course, there's been some other research that's going on because we've had Simon Guerrier working on his David Whitaker book and David Brunt doing his Doctor Who production file. So was there any liaison between the three of you about things you were coming across so there's consistency? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really know. I don't, well, I don't know. Uh, I've never met David and Simon. Uh, I, I've sort of corresponded a little bit with David in the past, and uh, I've never had anything to do with Simon at all. But I happened to find out while I was sort of researching the David Whittaker bit of my book, uh, I found out that he was um, working on uh, a David Whittaker book. And it turns out both coming out from the same publisher, actually, were both both of Ten Acre. But I didn't know that at the time. And um, so I, I, I dropped Simon a line and just explained, well, I'm writing this book. Um, would you mind having a look at the David Whittaker book just to make sure that it's accurate? Uh, I wasn't trying to kind of leech off his research or anything, but I, but I didn't want to put out something that was immediately going to turn out to be wrong. And he was he very kind. He, he actually ended up reading the whole book for me, which was very kind of him. And David had a look at the draft for me as well, which was very kind of him. Uh, and he and David had actually, they, they'd sort of, uh, they'd combined I think they know each other better than I know either of them. And uh, they joined forces on, on the research to some degree, and they'd compiled a, a big, long kind of Excel spreadsheet of, uh, of all the kind of memos and stuff that exist. And uh, Simon was kind enough to uh, to share that with me. I, I do know, because David has has said and sort of apologised for this, that there is there is one fact in his book that, that isn't in mine, that he's sort of, he's sort of keep... I don't think it's like a major, you know, <laughs> everything he thought you knew is the wrong thing, but there is a little tidbit I know that he's got in his one that's uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what it is that, that I didn't have. But uh, it's, it wasn't like sort of competitive or anything like that. But um, I mean, that's one of the nice things about, as I'm sure you found, the, the Doc 2 community, as it, as it were, that most people are, 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 are very happy to sort of share their research and things. And there's very few people who, if you're on, on the non-fiction side, I think if you're working on something, if you say, oh, can I ask a question about this? Very few people will say, no, go away. Yeah, so it's, it's quite a nice, nice community in that sense, I think. Most recently, as we're recording, Doctor Who's just gone live on iPlayer. Yeah. Of course, there's no sign of an unearthly child. Um, any interesting facts that Steph Coburn may not be aware of? As yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much I want to go into. Oh, you know, obviously, we don't know. I don't know what the exact state of play is between Steph and the BBC. Uh, I'm not an expert on UK copyright law or anything <laughs> like that. I do know that, you know, and I think this is matter of public record. It's it's out and about there, isn't there? That when Anthony Coburn stopped being a member of staff at the BBC uh, in the summer of 1960, because he'd started working on this when he was still a member of staff, the script department was being disbanded. So in, I think, the end of June, uh, he stops being a member of staff and he's then recontracted for his work on Doctor Who as a freelance. Uh, and in the contract that he signs for work, continue to work on this as a freelance, it is made explicit that the format and the regular characters are owned by the BBC. 
and they're not owned by him. So that element is certainly explicit. We know as well, because it's in the paperwork, that although we don't have C.E. Webber's go at doing the first episode, we do know from the credit on the program's broadcast document and also in the in the, the copyright information in the files as well, we know that C.E. Webber was regarded by the BBC as a, as a co-author of the first episode. I mean, that might have just been being careful on the BBC's part, they might have just wanted to make sure that... Because obviously uh, there were always going to be similar elements with when someone else then has a go at doing the first episode. So they might have just wanted to make sure that... Because uh, there's a record of how much Weber was paid for his work on that, what came an unearthly child. So they might have just wanted to make sure that he was paid and acknowledged for that so that he couldn't then come back and say, well, hang on, you've ripped off you know, my first episode that I've done. But... Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that the format and the basic characters and uh, and things are owned by the BBC. I mean, one thing I do talk about in the book is because obviously Steph Coburn had talked a lot about what he remembered his father doing in his interview with Graham Kibble White for Doctor Who magazine ten years ago, which was which was one of my main sources for the, the material I wrote about Coburn in this book. And it's interesting how both Steph Coburn and Donald Wilson's um, daughter Holly they both remember their father coming up with the. The, the name of the TARDIS. And this is one of those instances where we talked about earlier, where you just have to present the reader with the different accounts and let them decide. And what I posited in the book was that, you know, it is possible to imagine a scenario in which they're both right, in which perhaps Donald Wilson came up with the name TARDIS and perhaps Anthony Coburn came up with the acronym to fit those letters. But we just don't know. There's, there is no there is no record. But um, yeah, it, it's a sad and complicated situation and none of us know the exact ins and outs of it and just have to hope that uh, Steph Coburn and the BBC are eventually able to come to some sort of accommodation. Absolutely agreed. And it, it's, it's a sad situation because it's I, don't, I take no joy in seeing what's been played out on Twitter and people getting so angry and worked up. And all we want to do is appreciate his dad's work. And mm. obviously, I can see he wants acknowledgement for what his dad did. And yeah, completely, you know, can see both sides of the story. But well, fingers crossed it's resolved before too long. Yeah, now, it's sad for people like uh, Caroline Ford and, and William Russell and Morris Hussain as well, whose work on that uh, that pioneering first episode especially is not, not being seen as widely as perhaps it would otherwise have been at, at this point. But fingers crossed, when they get it resolved, yeah. then it means that it's there. It's almost like a like missing episodes returning. I'm, I'm sure there'll be some sort of resolution uh, at some point. Anyway, I mean, there are only it has only got I mean, only um, it's only got another 24 years in copyright because um, Santi Coban died in 1977. Uh, copyright law is death plus 70 years. So in 2047, that script goes out of copyright. Anyway, so if nothing else, in 24 years, it will then be available again. I'm just trying to work. No, I'm going to be too old then. No, I'll, I'll be old enough. I'll be in my seventies. But yes, that's that's all good. That's all good. Any other particular highlights from the book? Because it, when looking through it, there's just it's great just to have all this information together in the one place and all these quotes and lovely stuff from Verity Lambert and just little, little bits. You know, just the research you've done, just top notch and pulling it all together. It's it's not been an easy task. I can tell. From personal well, experience. I mean, in some senses, but, uh, you know, when you're a fan, especially when you're a fan who enjoys sort of looking into the history, you know, these, these things are very enjoyable to do and very enjoyable to look into. I suppose in terms of the bit I enjoyed researching and writing the most, it was probably that the penultimate chapter, chapter 14, which is all about the evening of uh, Kennedy's assassination and the recording of the survivors. I decided to use that episode as the kind of case study for how Doctor Who was made at the time to explain a bit more about how it worked in the studio and all that kind of thing because The Survivors, for those who don't know, is the second episode of the second serial. It's the first proper appearance of the Daleks. 
I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by the way you dodged around the issue of what do you call the second serial serial no. B, the Daleks, the mutants, the dead planet. That was a very, very good dodge. Well, I just kind of, um, yeah, I mean, because it gets referred to as so many, you know, beyond the sun at one point as well. And uh, so most I just refer to it as like the second serial and then refer to the individual episode titles, which seemed like the easiest way of doing it. Everyone knows what you're talking about then and what you're referring to. But um yeah, that episode. I mean, obviously, this is you might be sort of, you might be sort of projecting onto this from a retrospective viewpoint. But when you look back at it, with the knowledge that these people have just, you know, a little early that evening, it's like watching something that was recorded on the evening of September the eleventh, two thousand and one. It's that it's that same kind of thing. You know that this huge cataclysmic world event has just hit them, and you watch the episode, and it has such a bleak and sparse atmosphere. And you know, and it's only the four of the minute, really, the regulars. There's um, there's an extra, as a file sort of draping a cloak around the trees, and obviously there's the Dalek operators and and the Dalek voices. But in terms of actual, you know, humanoids on screen, it's just the four regulars. And so it, it has that kind of heavy, bleak, and because it's sort of post nuclear and all that feel to it. And that evening and that, that weekend, I just find fascinating. So I wanted to kind of, and because it's it's such a weird thing, isn't it? You know, how do you explain this to non-Doctor Who fans that we that we so associate the beginning of this show that we love with the assassination of Kennedy that are so tied together in our minds that I really wanted to kind of go into what happened on television that evening and how it was dealt with and across that weekend and bring that all together. And so that, that was a chapter that I really enjoyed writing. So imagine that once again, getting the finished copies through must have been such a delight just that that excitement when it's in your hand becomes tangible it was it was it was it was um actually it's funny this time around i think because I, I paid for a few more copies so you get a certain number of author copies of 10 acre but i had quite a few i wanted to send to different people so i paid for a few so it's quite a big box so i just didn't actually get mine until other people had started getting you know people who'd ordered it started getting it so i was starting to see pictures go up on twitter of people saying oh i've got the book and i was like oh i haven't got mine yet and then uh it arrived luckily it was on a um it was a day, day when i had a day off my day job so i was here at the flat so i was able to have to get the parcel when it arrived and uh yeah opening it up and, and seeing it inside and uh Stuart, uh, the publisher, had sent me uh, a, a little postcard in with it, and um, I think he knows that, that one of my sort of favourite bits from the, the documentation is um, Donald Wilson's memo to the editor of the Radio Times about, you know, with that that great prophetic sentence in it where he says, uh, "I myself believe that we have an absolute knockout in this show, and there will be no question, but it, that it will run and run," which is one of the most kind of prophetic things anyone writes in the whole prehistory of Doctor Who. And uh, Stuart put a little postcard in with the book saying, uh, "It's." It, 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 it's a knockout so uh that that was uh that i quite quite enjoyed that but yeah having them having them there it was uh yeah it was nice it was uh it was uh yeah it felt really good and uh talking of Stuart manning another fantastic cover for you again yes yeah and andrew orton of course who uh, Stuart, uh puts the kind of cgi bit together yeah he uh it was Stuart's idea that it should have the same sort of template as the long game because he wanted to convey the fact that as i mentioned earlier it was in a similar sort of style in terms of trying to give that wider bbc and broadcasting context to, to the events and a bit more biographical information about the people say so, so he thought well, one good way of signaling to people that it was a book written very much in that same style with that same kind of treatment would be to have a, a, a similar cover design so it looks like they're, they're sort of part of the same series as it were oh it definitely definitely feels just looking at it see i've got a copy requested for christmas from santa uh, so that's why i haven't got a physical copy uh, yet <laughs> but uh, it's on my christmas list so I'm, oh well thank you very much oh no thank you very much oh, i've uh, 
I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, just reading the the PDF as we were saying before we started. It's a it's a hefty tome, lots yeah. of detail, and I think anyone who's got an interest, it's not just in the creation of Doctor Who, but I think in television production and particularly from the sixties and how TV is made or, or was made. I think it's a great read from that perspective as well. Well, hopefully so. Yeah, that was the idea of of, of it trying to. Uh, try to explain to people how it worked because sometimes you know you think about uh, you know these terms that we use like multi-camera and single camera and and yeah and you think well actually maybe some people might be interested in this maybe younger fans or things but they might not know what the difference is between making something in a multi-camera studio and making something on film and things like that so without wanting to sound patronising you know you want to try and try and explain these things and uh, and why they're different and and what that difference means and all that kind of thing so I was trying to uh, although obviously most of the people who read a book like this are going to be already interested in that subject uh, a bit like like I did with the long game, I tried to kind of, you know, we're trying to explain the intricacies of the BBC. You try and imagine it, you know, what if an alien just landed and they needed all of this explained to them, you know? So I tried to hopefully make it interesting for people who already know the subject, but hopefully accessible as well for those who don't. That, that was the aim anyway. Yeah, I think, and the tone is absolutely great. The language is it's perfect. It works absolutely. And so it's educated enough, for you to, and but also it's easy enough to follow, perhaps even for people in their teens who are fascinated and yeah, for me, it works for well, all so. I mean, that's that's one of the things, you know, uh, trying to write the kind of book that I would have loved reading, you know, when I was, you know, I remember reading, uh, I think I was about 13 when I first got a copy of the first Doctor Handbook, which has got that production diary section at the back where a lot of these memos are sort of put out in timeline form for the first time. And that's actually, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting that one, you mentioned about things that I didn't know. And uh, one of the things that I found out was actually incorrect in that was that for a long time we thought that the uh, the first filming for the titles was done on the 20th of August 1963 and this had slightly confused me for a while because it said it was done at Ealing Studios and I, I thought well Ealing Studios is where the BBC did film production there was nothing there that they could make Howl around with so what would they have done there for the title there was a session booked for Ealing for August the 20th and it was supposed to be for the titles what they would have done there I don't know because you couldn't make Howl around there because you need an electronic studio with a gallery and everything for that, not not a film soundstage. And then I found out just when looking through the documentation that actually that August 20th session never happened. It was cancelled. And so what we'd thought for a long time was, you know, the first ever filming for Doctor Who didn't actually happen that day. I mean, that, that, that bit's always been in the files, but just for some reason it had been missed by the people in the past that, that, that it was that it was cancelled. So uh, it was quite nice to, if I did have a little exclusive, and that was probably it, finding out that the August 20th session never happened. Everything you know about the history of the Doctor Who title sequence is a little yes, bit wrong. Which is, I mean, that's a hell of a one. That's one of those ones where, you know, for, for the session that did happen, the one at TV Centre at the end of August, everyone and their brother claims to have been there. There's an amazing sequence. Uh, the, the BBC Pensioners magazine, Prospero, is available on the BBC website. They, they put them up as PDFs every month. And after um, uh, one of the people involved died, there was a huge out- explosion of correspondence in Prospero from various people claiming to have been there when they, you know, and uh, I flashed the torch. No, it was a lighter. I put the lighter on. And, uh, and yeah, so, I mean, if everyone who claims to have been at the first Doctor Who title session was there, it would have been like Woodstock. So uh, that's one of those ones that's difficult, difficult to get to the bottom of. Oh, that's fantastic. Paul, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much again for taking the time. And everybody, please pop over to the Ten Acre Films website and buy a copy now. <laughs> well, no, thank you very much for your time and uh, thank you very much for having read the book and thank you for inviting me back on. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. And thanks to Paul for his time. 
This book is available, as we record, still available from 10 Acre Publishing, or I think it's www.10acrefilms, I should say, and you'll be able to get a copy there, and it's priced £12.99, but you'll need to pay for postage as well, but hugely entertaining and what a great cover as well isn't it sort of in the vein of yeah like the other one it's the sort of um you know self-assembly model kit type sort of thing situation yeah it's very charming it has lots of charm so yeah definitely recommended and go and get yourself a copy so there we go awesome thank you dave it's a pleasure kenny so can i choose what we play it with today okay well i'll tell you what i've got in mind but you can choose i'm going to change it i'm going to change it completely okay (laughs) i was thinking right because this is talking about the genesis of doctor who Mm -hmm. i was thinking of new order song 1963 right okay no i was thinking do you remember the the old bbc archives and pop music show um the rock and roll years no but you yes, do so. I do. You do. I do. Of course you do. I'm teasing you. When they did 1963 and the death of Kennedy and the, the transmission of an unearthly child, currently not available in the BBC I player at the time of recording, once they played the little clip of the Doctor and Susan and Ian and Barbara and the ship and all that, and you know, and now let me get this straight. I think it looks like a police box standing in the junkyard. It can move anywhere in time and space. Yes, quite so. But but that's ridiculous. Sugar and Spice by the Searchers crashed in, so I'd quite like to play it with that, given that it's appropriate for the time period. All right, we'll go with that. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode, believe it or not. Gosh, I've no idea. I'm completely lost at this point, listeners. I've no idea where I am, who I am, who you are, what my name is, and I'm quoting Time the Rani. But anyway, we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> if I'm on that one, I don't know if I am or not. We'll yes, find you, out. Are, you are due am to be I? back. Right, okay, good. Right, we'll see you tomorrow then, listeners. Take care. Bye bye. Sugar and Spice and all things nice. Kisses sweeter than wine Sugar